Dear friends, this is Alley Audio Vision on the streets and in the sky above 1960s Anchorage, Alaska. I'm Clark Yarrington of Frame Residential Design. Ralph Alley is an architect who worked in Anchorage in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. In this episode, Ralph's boss, Francis Mayer, confronts Ralph about his freelance projects in front of the whole drafting room after a discussion of atmospheric conditions. We talk about designers who are not registered architects and working on house projects then and now. We review additional twists and turns in Ralph's employment and other activities in 1962 and 63. And then Ralph, contemplating a real estate investment with two friends, makes a trip with them from Anchorage to Homer, and they experience complications on the return leg. In this saga I'm writing about my time in Alaska, There is a chapter in there entitled Clouds. And clouds are sometimes good, but these clouds are like storm clouds. The one word clouds is the first time I started getting pushback about any of my activities up there. It started one day when Mayer, who is one of my bosses, he stalks in comes in the aisle next to my drafting table and he kind of stands there stalking in place. And he had a tendency to breathe loud. He was a rather large person. Any exercise kind of winded him, but he doesn't say anything. And neither does anyone else in that drafting room. And everybody's always very attentive when a boss steps into the room. And I got to thinking, somebody better say something. I I can't even work with him standing there, and I can't stand it. So I'm the closest one to him, and I look at him and says, clouds over west are large, looks like rain. And I knew how stupid that sounded at the time. And, but there are times you say things and you wish you could withdraw them or erase them, but this is one of those times. And he answered me with, that standard cumulus activity. And he just snapped that out into the room, breathing even louder. But he stayed there. He didn't move. And he wasn't looking at the clouds out the out west on those through those windows. He just stood there looking at me. And uh, I, I'll never forget that day. He wore this orange shirt that was buttoned clear up to his neck and was buttoned down to each wrist. He was kind of a round person, which exaggerated that. And he had kind of a mustache. It was walrus kind of, and it started to move. And he said, 
Here you've designed a house up in the hills. I looked at him and says, are you talking to me? I didn't know what answer. I was hoping something really wonderful had come in my head, but nothing came there. And he says, does my question fit that situation, Ralph? And I looked at him and says, actually, yes. Is that what you want to know? And the breathing just <laughs> like that. And he says, don't we pay and keep you busy enough here so you aren't needing extra work? Francis, I'm here every day full time. The house has nothing to do with either being busy or money. Then what? And I said, oh, I'll test myself and try out ideas to learn. You're a big college guy. Don't you know everything? I hate that kind of idea that you know everything once you go. I know people who have PhDs, Clark, who think they go through life knowing everything. And I have a brother-in-law once who went to Harvard and you couldn't talk to him because Harvard was the end of all education. <laughs> but anyway, I looked at Francis and I just told him, you know, college is a starting point. It just shapes what you're interested in and instructs you on finding and using information. That's about it. Well, you're in competition with this office. No, I'm not, I answered. The firm doesn't do residences. Bill told me that himself. What I'm doing is small. Manley and Mayer wouldn't afford providing services or consider producing that project. Well, there's no sense in doing it if it's so small. By now, the entire drafting room was watching, and I was on stage with Francis, and we had everyone's attention, and... Mayor's one person who never dresses anybody down in private like Bill Manley. He, he was such a gentleman. This was the time when Lou was there, Lou Welburn, who's very homespun. His station was about midway in the drafting bank, and he stands up. This rather decisive, clear, deep voice of his, he, he said, small things grow into big things. Even that standard cumulus activity out there will make rain somewhere. Rain falls on small seeds. Small seeds sprout. From small sprouts, big trees grow. And there was a silence. <laughs> Just amazing. And finally, Mayer had no more words to say to anybody. He just kind of sputtered and spinned this twirl of orange and he made a fast stage exit out of the room. I always loved Lou for coming to my defense with that and he was always so wonderful and kind to me. But I think that this point is something that happens to a lot of young architects who are unregistered and who are starting out. Of course, I was unregistered at the time, of course. You're just so full of energy and ideas when you get out there in the field, you just want to get to work. And all I could think about was just getting things growing out of the ground and seeing how they turned out. And I was wondering if you ever have received pushback in what you're doing. For sure, more than one time. Back to the story, as you started it, um, the partner, um, Manly, would not have handled this in the same way. But it made me think, uh, when I was hearing this unfold, uh, what year was it when they decided that if they were needed to have a conversation like this, that they should like um, take you into a conference room or something, instead of like um, having the whole thing play out in front of all the other people that were working there? Was that really necessary to handle it in that way? <laughs> 
was that supposed to make the other people uh, glad that it wasn't happening to them and uh, keep them in line and discourage them from doing any freelancing, do you think? I don't know. A mayor was an emotional person. I knew both sides of him through the years that I worked there. And sometimes he'd love me and sometimes he'd hate me. And this was about 1962. He just got wind of the six-sided house on the hill. Maybe he just wanted to make a point of it in everybody who was in the office so they wouldn't do the same things. It's always a challenge to know what is in people's minds when they confront you. And I have given up trying to read minds, though I think that it's probably a good thing to have a mind reading class 101 when you start college. (laughs) But unfortunately, they don't teach that. Francis was an enigma in a way with his actions. I do think it probably was to demonstrate to other people you better not, but I'm not sure about that. I don't know why they would even want to do that necessarily. The way that I'd heard it explained to me before is that something like, uh, and you know, it, it wasn't the same in every single office. I worked for six or eight different offices before um, becoming independent, but it was um, usually a situation where they knew that um, freelancing on residential projects was something that was happening. And so if the subject came up at all, what which it usually didn't, uh, it would be said that, well, we don't want you like um, working on the project at the office when you're supposed to be working on our projects, and we don't want uh, our resources being used in any way, you know, printing or even mm-hmm. even a phone call or anything. You know, we don't necessarily think it's a good idea to discourage it from happening altogether. The overall dynamic is that, and you alluded to this in your comments too, the big architectural firms don't really compete with independent designers fee-wise and uh, in lots of other ways. And um, the, the idea that the project is uh, not worth doing if there's not like a fee associated with it, well, um, I don't know, people uh, still would like to have a nice house and could benefit by um, design services. The idea of competition seems strange to me, too. Last year in Anchorage, there were probably um, 200 to 300 permits issued for single-family dwellings and duplexes. And I, myself, was responsible for four of them. So um, Mm -hmm. am I competing with uh, architectural firms? Not really. Well, I think taking that out of the syntax of development of Anchorage is uh, probably where sophistication has come to acknowledging people doing work who are unregistered. Yes, there were only, as I mentioned, five firms, and there was kind of a monopoly. Unfortunately, the things I did got known. I think it undid people. I'm not sure about that, but I got a lot of notice, and I think that in some ways there was kind of a stop, stop him kind of attitude. I, I'm not sure I could be paranoid about that, but I did get a lot of pushback. I think in time that there was a leniency that uh, seemed to get into the general thinking about uh, unregistered people doing residential work. I was surprised when I was applying and did get my registration in California that after I received registration that there was a whole 
echelon of people in the who were called building designers who suddenly became registered just by a stroke of a pen by the legislature. And I think about the years it took me and the hardship I went through in order just to get my registration in Alaska. So there is kind of a leniency that has come about and probably the uh, an acknowledgement that architecture firms are too uh, expensive to run to do residential work. However, where I live here in, in California, there is a continual call for getting architectural stamps on the most menial of architecture. I don't do that kind of thing because of liabilities, but there are people who do. They just stamp anything and uh, collect a fee and uh, the modern equivalent of the Cobb job, perhaps? Yes, something like that. The city itself hasn't recognized that there must be other ways in order to get people to allow them to do their garage additions or their other architecture that doesn't require architects. And, and I don't know, is this a peculiar American um, thing, but there are a lot of homeowners who think they're perfectly capable of designing their own houses and they don't <laughs> need any help from anybody at all. I mentioned Ray Salman, some of the earlier podcasts, and he one time enlightened me that way. He said, everybody's an architect. After all, we work and live in spaces and we feel like we could conquer those or change them at will. And I've never thought of architecture being that way, that uh, that's the space within which we live. And we somewhat understand those spaces and how they go together. I thought that was kind of an interesting, oh, there's that word again, compelling aspect of his conversation. How's that? Better. Better, yes. <laughs> well, speaking of that, it's probably a good time to go on to the second segment. All right, let's do that, and uh, we'll come back, talk some more. You better believe it. More of this interesting discussion. I used to play around with hearts, hasten at my call. But when I met that little girl, that I would fall for a little food. Oh yeah, I was a fool. Uh huh. Oh, oh. Boy, I was a fool. She'd play around and tease me with her carefree devil eyes. She'd hold me close and kiss me, but her heart was full of lies. Poor little fool. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. 
This is Alley Audio Vision, dear listener, with Ralph Alley and myself, Clark Yarrington. In our center segment, Ralph talks about changes at Manley and Mayer Architects as senior associates exit the company, the differences between Manley and Mayer and their competitors, Crittenden and Associates, are described, and we talk some more about the Inlet Tower building. I do think that the intensity people had against unregistered people started dissipating as Anchorage started growing, and it was really somewhat out of hand. Many, many changes were happening to Anchorage, uh, and it seemed as if everything around you was impacted by growth. And even the firm, uh, Manny Mayer, just started being very different. And one of the things that happened, uh, that I think when Mayer got onto my case as a toward the end of 1962 or something like that, he f- started flying to the Fijis over there in the mid-Pacific, uh, south mid-Pacific, and he loved it down there, and he kept disappearing all the time on these trips. His presence in the audience became less and less. And then Yvonne, who was our stalwart gal at the front desk who kept everything straight in the office, left to become Wally Hickel's uh, executive secretary. He was uh, then starting to run for governor, uh, I believe, and uh, she got quite ensconced with his political activities. And she remained with him for 47 years, which is Uh, really an interesting venue for someone, I would believe. And then two associates that were originally at Manley Mayer in 63, uh, Charles uh, Kendall, uh, who married uh, uh, Cora Horton, who was the choral director, he died. And that was a very sad thing. Uh, He got ill and he just suddenly just disintegrated. And uh, then the next thing that happened was Hamilton, who hired me in Seattle, he left. He was responsible and for, well, he was actually a, uh, Harry Hill, who had the Fourth Avenue Theater downtown, was uh, one of his longtime friends and clients. And Ham did in a penthouse on top of the Fourth Avenue Theater for him. And then uh, the FAA wanted a seven-story building and a bunch of different people came together in a conglomerate and put forth uh, architects and builders and prices uh, to um, go in the competition, and Ham's building won. And it was uh, a seven-story building. I think it's a seventh and G. So he left the firm, and that really left Manley in charge with Chuck Kendall and, and Bob Hamilton and Francis Mayer somewhat no longer in the firm. Were there other people that uh, rose up to take their place? Well, there were people who wanted to be in their place, but when I was there, there was no one like that. There was some people trying to be noticed to become an associate who didn't make it. That, uh, But there were a lot of capable people in the firm at the time. Uh, Wendell Bonner, uh, he's the guy with the yellow eyes uh, that I talked about earlier in podcast uh, was very, very good. And he always was bucking for some kind of position there. And 
There's another guy uh, from Seattle that Dick Mayo, he was uh, with the firm Thatcher and Mayo in Seattle. And I think he went back and forth a couple of times before he ended up in uh, Anchorage. But uh, Dick w became a very good friend of mine, extremely good architect, good designer, wonderful uh, drafter, a beautiful artist, and he just a uh, kind of a nice, nice person. He was big bone, lumbering kind of guy, kind of walked like Frankenstein, but uh, you couldn't know him but like him. Later, I think, went into practice with Bill. This was after, you know, in the late 60s, maybe, for a while. And so the firm really did have different directions uh, with all of this happening. And of course, um, my tenure there with all this happening, I didn't want to take any more responsibilities and I was getting awfully busy. So I just kept my mouth shut and did what they asked, kept myself going. So you were still there for a couple of more years after you had that undesirable encounter, encounter with Mayer and you were still oh, yeah. um, uh, ramping up your uh, side work, sounds like. It's kind of how it was. Bill Manley, I adored him. Just a wonderful man. He, he's kind of my kind of person, just kind of go about his business, very efficient with what he did. Not terribly loud, not as loud as I am. Uh, <laughs> but he just is a kind of a, a great person that I really liked. But anyway, to get on with this, uh, How long did that firm last, anyway? Well, I left Manly and Mayer after the earthquake, and I would say in the summer after the earthquake in uh, 1964, I was just pushed with work. After that happened, I'd gotten known enough, and I just got a lot of commissions. And Mayer, I mean, Manly just kind of took it on for a while, and of course, Clark, I lost track I told you it was like playing ping pong. One crisis, just uh, crisis is pinged at you, and you just pong it back. And and life was like that for about many years after that in Anchorage. And I didn't know what was going on except just tending to one crisis after another. And uh, that's kind of the way architecture was. It was fast and furious, and uh, I was in the middle of it, trying to get it also registered at the same time. I found myself wondering what happened to that firm a couple times, because um, w when I was working in the field, um, we would quite commonly, like when doing an addition to a building, uh, get a set of the original plans in the office, and we would use those to, uh, you know, draw draw up the existing conditions first with hand drawing, and then later with uh, AutoCAD. But um, I saw tons of their drawings, and you'd ask somebody older than you about it, and said, "Yeah, they were the big firm around here for years, and they pretty much did everything, everything that was of any size." Well, C Crittenden was in there as well. I, the two firms that really were c competitors. Ed certain to have an elan about him that Manley Mayer never did. He was always in, involved, would prob probably be the best word, with the cultural aspects of Anchorage, where Bill Manley was just a very silent, plodding type. And very nice, by the way. Had a family, a, a daughter, a son. I think, I think Rob Manley has practiced engineering or something for years in... Uh, Anchorage, I could be wrong about that. I didn't know him since he was in junior high school or something like that. 
the idea that there were these two as two firms. There was one that seemed to draw the more uh, cultural tending interest people who were had an interest in cultural aspects of Manly Mayer just were very kind of plotting good solid architects and their buildings kind of showed that. Crittenden went spent I think maybe a year with his family and uh, went to uh, Denmark and to study uh, Alvar Alto and uh, different uh, early architects there. Certainly received a lot of cachet from that from the community and people were drawn to him and he gave a lot of talks and slideshows and certainly was credible to uh, growing his firm in more of the aesthetic direction than Manly Mayer did. Uh, Manly Mayer's buildings were very tidy and basic and substantial. Crittenden always had a little flair involved and hired people who had flair. Salmi was one, of course, and I think uh, there were a lot of other architects who went over there who had that certain way of approaching architecture. I liked Ed a lot. We had some times that we had words with each other and probably did until the end, but we had bad words and we had good words and we were able to surmount all of that. You know, there was a time I ended up on a sailboat trip with Ian Kit. <laughs> and no one, I mean, as, as I told you, you can get whiplash in this life. Mm -hmm. I talked about this a little bit in that blog post that I wrote about the house tour that you conducted about uh, 25 years ago here. Ed Crittenden was along for part of that trip, and we were riding in a van and going from project to project. And then on the way there, you would be talking about the projects, and um, Ed would uh, chime in and and start talking about something he was working on at the same time that was, you know, 10 times larger or something, but <laughs> people didn't want to hear about it. You know, and I had a feeling this is like exactly like these two were in the 60s, you know? <laughs> His his projects were so much bigger, but it's like they 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 wanted to hear from from Ralph, the the nutty guru designer with the uh, <laughs> with the really weird house. Well, I w attended many social gatherings with the Crittendons, and uh, they seemed to end up in the same place as I did. I worked uh, very close with uh, Kit, who I thought was one of the more beautiful women in Anchorage, <laughs> and. Uh, she, uh, on the Urban Beautification Commission, I was on that for years, and uh, I worked with Ken Maynard and, and a gal who was a landscape architect named Edna Fisk, and Eddie Lum was on it, who was the guy with the Velvetex Cadillac and ended up with the chalk in his lap and that new drawing class. And we were, we all became very close because we were involved with signage and, and uh, city planning and trying to actually guide Anchorage into its into a direction which uh, would certainly take under consideration all the aspects that would make Anchorage a better city. And one was getting sunlight, orienting buildings so that we'd never ended up like New York City, that we'd have buildings that would be angled or the corners lapped off so the sun could lick into the city blocks. We used to be into those things and try to guide the signage. And gosh, Clark, I see these YouTube renditions of Anchorage that newcomers uh, make and get it out there for 
universal consumption. And I look at the signage and this stuff going on. Anchorage had a chance to really, I think, uh, be one of the nicer visual cities with all the beauty around it. And it didn't seem like any of our work took a hold. Well, it's um, there. There's probably some reasons to um, be depressed and and cynical about it, but it's also there's I don't know. I think there's some success uh, stories in there. There might be some um, signs that are out of control, but there still is certain rules, like the sign can't be more than a certain distance away from the business, you know. And and we still don't have billboards on the highways and things like that. So with the with the big stuff, we've managed to keep it under control. They probably could. Die dial back the size of the signs and it wouldn't hurt anything. Enforcement's a different matter, you know. There's a lot of stuff that's been done out there that doesn't really meet the rules and, and nobody does anything. Like a plastic chicken on top of the geodesic dome, those things? You know, there's a good story, an office uh, where I used to work for, and um, these guys did a little grocery store downtown that was uh, across the street from the inlet towers. Mm. In the in the fifties and sixties, it was a small independent corner store, and then it was vacant for a while. And in the nineties, they turned it into um, this place called New Sagaya City Market. So they have a sign there uh, that sort of um, is just the letters floating up in the sky. Since there's no sign background. They calculated the area that just the letters take up. There's always people that are looking for a good way to subvert the sign ordinance, you know, and there's some creative solutions like that. Well, that was the family market, I believe, for years. Right. That used to be the place I would, where I was starving in the L Street, I used to run over there and find something forage for food. There was a little store in that um place uh when i was living in that neighborhood down on uh inlet place like a, like a block away from the spots we've been talking about the store was closed for a while and i was um thirsty and i was looking to buy a soda the store was closed and i'm like oh i'm gonna go into the to the inlet tower there they probably have a soda machine you know and the guy at the desk said yeah just hop in the elevator and go up to any even numbered floor and there'll be a soda machine in the hallway and i'm like okay so i got in the elevator and i'm like even number okay how about 14 <laughs> and, I, and i went up to the 14th floor and i found the soda machine but also like um all of the doors to the suites were open, and so I just sort started like wandering through some of them and l looking at the view out the windows, you know. <laughs> Isn't that nice up there? Yeah, it's beautiful. Twin building on the east side has had a much more complicated uh, existence in that uh, people decamped from that building sometime in the 70s, and it sat empty for a long time. It got pretty, pretty scary until it was finally reclaimed. Neil McKay was an attorney, and he uh, bought that building, and the upper two floors were his penthouse. Later, he married Mario File, who became a client of mine. Uh, who is a sister to Bob File and uh, who had the uh, building, Hewitt Drugstore building that I lived in over the Chichaco Bar. And uh, they, were, they were the brother and sister from a long time Anchorage family. But there was a great problem, I guess, a divorce in their marriage. And uh, they had one son and there was a big custody struggle between the two, but I won't get into that right now because uh, there's quite a saga later in my life over that, over what happened there. But Neil McKay was an attorney that 
Frank Nosek, who people will hear about and have already heard about in these podcasts, he, I think he clerked at uh, Neil McKay's office uh, in his early years. Uh, Neil was kind of a Howard Hughesian kind of character. Uh, he, he would come out at night or something. Not many people saw him in the daylight, but, but uh, I often wondered what happened uh, to the McKinley building over there because they, those upper floors were his. And uh, that's, that's quite a lot of uh, square footage to live in, I would believe. It's uh, been occupied again now for probably uh, 20 years or a little bit more. But yeah, I went through a long period before then for 30-ish years where there was nothing in there at all. And they were, you know, naturally people were kind of concerned like, uh, do we need to uh, demolish this building? Uh, which, of course, would have been like extremely difficult. You know, I can't imagine what that, what that would have looked like. <laughs> True. <laughs> try, try to try to implode it into a big pile of rubble and, you know, probably wipe out that neighborhood of little houses that you were talking about at the same time. Well, I watched uh, during the earthquake, I watched L Street look like <coughs> all the spandrels between the windows got X's. The concrete just cracked and X's under all the windows. And it looked like the building was changing color. It was a very creamy Crisco-like color with green. Uh, I can't remember how it was done, but it was a banded color scheme on that. But all of a sudden it looked like it was, instead of Crisco and green, it looked gray and green. It was a strange phenomenon just over those five minutes of that quake. Yeah, we'll have to talk about that more when we get to the earthquake. But what I remember that too, and what was interesting was the two buildings, and they're they're almost exactly the same building, or they or they are the same, I think. But the damage sustained on both of them was very similar. Yes. Well, time for um, the break after the second segment, and on to the third and final one in a minute. Oh, okay. Here. <laughs> And keep saying, do you take this woman to be your awful witted wife? <laughs> I never start a thinking about her no more, winking at the pretty little gals a bopping by. I no more dancing and a new romance, and Lord, it made me want to sit down and cry. Oh, no, pool shooting at a rooting at a tooting with the boys if I take you for my wife. I can't go no place, I gotta look at your face for the rest of my doggone life. This is it! in the first place you know i don't go for this marriage bit i was only kidding <laughs> and there's your daddy sitting over there with a shotgun laid across his lap and a big smile on his ugly face and the man keeps saying are you gonna take this woman or ain't you well i never started thinking about her no more winking at the pretty little gals bopping by I no more dancing and a new romance and Lord, it made me want to sit down and cry Oh, no pool shooting and a rooting attitude and with the boys if I take you for my wife I can't go no place, I gotta look at your face for the rest of my doggone life This is it! Honey, what's this jazz about love, honor, and obey? That cat's talking to me! <laughs> Hey, look at all these good-looking bridesmaids standing around. <laughs> Hello, baby. <laughs> and the man in charge keeps saying, look here, do you take this woman or don't you? 
Well, uh, then I started thinking about uh, no more winking at the pretty little gals about my uh, No more dancing and a new romance. Lord, it made me want to sit down and cry. Ah, uh, no pool shooting and a rooting and a tooting with the boys if I take you for my wife. I can't go no place. I gotta look In at segment three on Alley Audio Vision, Ralph and two friends plan a quick business trip by air from Anchorage to Homer and back, trying to return by supper time. Let's just say it doesn't quite work out. I was talking about Frank Nosek, and I, we have discussed him uh, previously in our different podcasts, but he kind of figured into one of Dan from Texas schemes. He's Dan was quite entrepreneurial. I, I've never quite known someone like him, and I'll never forget him being that way because he always was amusing and course following him around uh, if you are watchful you might find yourself involved with his things yeah he wanted and, you to become an apartment developer with him or something yes. is that the same guy oh yeah dad was from texas uh i wonder how mayor would have felt about that i don't know he was he worked for trick diamond hayes which along with the lounsbury's uh, were the two best civil engineering firms there he by being there he got wind of all kinds of different uh, land transactions that were coming up. And he one day came to me and said that there were 70 acres down in Homer, which is the garden of, a, of that area. You've been there, haven't you, Clark? Oh, yeah. it's. Uh, I can only imagine what that must have been like in, in that era to contemplate. <laughs> you know, you almost wouldn't want to do it. But yeah, for, for people who are unfamiliar and haven't been there, it's a really wonderful place. It's on the end of the connected uh, road system south of Anchorage, 200 road miles, and uh, a wonderful, beautiful setting. There's a there's a spit that goes out into Kachemak Bay. Every single home site is um, on a on a slope, and it's got southern exposure and a water view, and you can see uh, just all. Well, you kinds see beautiful of stuff peaks there. like the Tetons almost, and glaciers coming down. It is such a beautiful, beautiful spot, and being coastal like that, the growth is very lush in contrast to Anchorage, which has a lot of high ground water and. It just has pockets of lush growth, but uh, with their coastal orientation, the growth gets very, very rich and very beautiful, and the hillsides are covered with wildflowers. It's just a wonderful, wonderful visual treat, and anyone who goes to Alaska should uh, make a beeline down there because that's one spot that is worthwhile to me. We started going down there right after uh, I was in Alaska in the early 70s, and my dad bought a couple of lots down there for almost no money. So we'd go down there and uh, stay on the weekend, and uh, he con- continued to do that for his entire uh, rest of his life, you know, <laughs> practically every weekend, like going from Anchorage to Homer and back. Well, it's well worth going there. I always felt rested when I returned and kind of fulfilled, uh, renewed would be a good word. But Dan got wind of these 70 acres up on the hill, basically flat, small tilt to it. He called me up one day and said, have you got any spare money? (laughs) And he says, I was thinking if you did and, and Frank had some spare money and he says, I've got some spare money. He says, why don't we pull it together and and buy that land and develop it and that was Dan <laughs> just he was living his essence out right there and 
course, we all knew uh, Homer, and uh, I thought, well, why not? So at that time, I lived down over the Chichaco Bar, and I told him that I'd see Frank for lunch. Usually he lands into the refrigerator right after 12 o'clock, and I'll wait in the kitchen for him. <laughs> and I talked to Frank, and he said, hell yes, let's do it. So I got back with Dan, and he says, there's a guy here in our office uh, named uh, Abe, and he has a a plane and he says he'll take us down there he says it's four passenger and uh so the three of us and he'll fly us down there and he said but we have to do it he said this our offer has to be in on monday and i can't remember if that was i think that was july 1st in 1963 i think that's the case he says but uh, this is friday and he says we've we've only got sunday to do it in so i said well get it set up and let's do it. And anyway, I was uh, kind of by a telephone that I told Dan I'd be by and he called me and he says, um, there's a problem. This was the day we're to take off. And oh, the other thing about this is that these gals that we all went with were having Sunday dinner for us about 5.36 that evening. So we had just a window of time that we had to uh, get this done, fly down, look at the land, meet the broker down there, the real estate broker, and fly back and be in time for dinner. We all decided that what we do is wear our dinner clothes that the gals would expect us to wear to save time. So if there was a little delay in getting back, we could just go right to uh, their place and have dinner. Anyway, Dan calls and says there's this problem, and he says uh, we got to delay takeoff. He said there's some mechanical problems with Abe's plane, and uh, he says trying to get it fixed on Sunday morning just just isn't happening. That's the way he talked. And he says Abe's looking into renting. He's found one. He's getting checked out on something right now. He says hey, you and Frank stay by. He says call the gals, tell them we'll be late. And I said well how late? And he said can't tell me yet. And he said, just stand by, I'll let you know. So anyway, we were standing by. All of a sudden, I get a call uh, that they found the plane. And he says, come on come on out. Abe rented an Aronka sedan. Uh, says, it's not new, but it's made for the bush. And uh, he says, it's lightweight, but it can haul stuff. He says, it's high wing, single engine, and all that stuff. He says, you and Frank will have to share a back bench seat. It, just there's one seat for you both to sit in. Anyway, uh, we got the plane together, and uh, or he did, and Frank and I drove out to Merrill Field, and Dan met us out there, and he says, uh, we have to take off right now. And I said, why right now? And he says, oh, this alert is just come in. There's a marine layer, a huge one, moving in off the Gulf of Alaska, and it's heading toward the mouth of where Cook Inlet comes in. And he says, they think it'll be in by this evening. And uh, so anyway, he says, you better call the gals and tell them maybe seven or something will be back for sure. So anyway, we take off in this plane. And I don't know, do you, there is a chapter in my book called Homer's Idiots and the Odyssey. Uh, would you like to read that for your part in this uh, wonderful podcast that we're doing? Yeah, I'll give it a shot. Homer's Idiots and the Odyssey. 
In cutting out things need doing between back from Homer and dinner, we hear about what our gals expect. Sweaters, slacks, loafers. Dan says the Catchmack Bay area is wet, close to Pacific's Alaska Gulf. We grab rain jackets. Tall, lanky Abe, guy with the plane, dresses like a surveyor. Serious boots, jeans, a longish canvas coat. Plainly, he hasn't dinner plans where we're going. We board through the plane's one door on the right side. Frank is first and back. I'm next. Abe reaches in, pushes the front seats back against Frank's and my knees, climbs in them, scoots across the front passenger seat and gets behind the controls. Then Dan, he closes and latches the door. We're off. Cramped, tiny, triangular windows. A shelf behind our seat like ones in Dad's cars. No rear window. Frank and I share one long backseat belt and buckle up. We taxi, stop for the ritual revving for an engine magneto test before the runway. Tower clears, we move, gain speed, and take to that upward mesmerizing experience where a scale transitions from land to sky. A turn high up crosses turning an arm. Looks like Abe is taking inlet south route over Kenai Peninsula's shoreline. Hell of a Sunday ride this is. Abe calls attention to the port side. That's Lake Testamina. Its width and length are twice Manhattan's width and length. Have great fishing. See Testamina Glacier at its southeast end. Ice calving off that glacier keeps the waters quite cold. Stories are legion where folks die from cold rather than drowning. That is after being deposited there in a crash. I'll take the inland, inland way back and avoid the expected marine layer. They mostly move in over water bodies as the cook. Inland uh, does a nine-mile stint over that beautiful lake, and we'll have a closer look. The glacier and ice field beyond the lake's northwest-southeast orientation and the boggy surrounding miles total real estate that pretty much bisects the peninsula's usable landmass between Homer and the Turnigan Arm. Combined, all that make overhead approaches into the lake near impossible. Looking out starboard, the inlet's west shore is probably 30 miles away. Looking maybe an equal distance straight ahead, the inlet plans with a dense haze layer higher than I can see. Abe bursts with, that's it, already coming in off Pacific's Gulf. Our course will hang a left at Catchmack before that stuff. Homer's airport is more east than what we see coming on. Homer is on the Gulf's north side, pretty much east where the two water bodies intersect ahead. Guys, as I said, fog follows water. That layer could spread over both. Really worries me. Do your business fast. Look at it. Horrific evidence bringing home this morning's frantic fog warnings earlier. Things immense. Serving left, we do pass by a small town off port, land, and taxi to a modest wood building. The realtor is already there. Car is out front. Yeah, we do land, and uh, the broker puts us in his car at that little airport. It's a wood building, and drives us uh, to the land's upper side, and he parks, and we start walking. And that's when I discover that loafers are not good for walking in that kind of terrain. And Abe tapes takes off with long legged strides and in his like seven leg boots and he covers a lot of land fast. But the fog starts dimming that sunlight that we had that was coming in from the west side. And our pilot, he gets really antsy. And anyway, when not walking, there just seems to be this pressure on us to hurry and get airborne for Anchorage. And Frank, then I, 
we suddenly just couldn't resist. We agree that those 70 acres are breathtaking and worth buying. And our discussion was, okay, and let's get on with it. And so anyway, we'll figure out the finances. We decided uh, on Monday over lunch, and then we'll meet with the broker mid-afternoon, and we'll give him our submittal. We get uh, back to the airport, and the broker drives us right next to our plane. At the airport, a thick west overcast replaces a sunlight, and the air just really gets chilly. And I get my jacket uh, from the plane and put it on, and, and the pilot keeps pressuring us to take off and starts a craft's walkabout. And I go inside and find the restroom. In there was a candy machine, and on the way out, I start for some reason, buying all the candy that I had changed for. I could hear my mom telling me as I was doing that, she said, what dinner's just off? You're going to ruin your diet or your appetite. Don't do that. And I guess it was a defiance. I always had a little defiance for this stuff. I just bought as much of that candy bar as I could and put them in the coat pocket of this rain jacket I had. Or I went back to the plane, they were revving it up and propeller was spinning out this strong draft and Dan was holding the door open and Frank was already in there and I get in and Dan slides a seat back against our knees again kneecaps and hikes himself in the cab and closes and latches the door and Frank and I buckle our one seat belt over us both we started off as we were starting off uh, my thoughts went back thinking about the ride back to Anchorage that the real estate had offered me or one of us he said he'd enjoy the company but it's too many hours that it'd take us uh, we wouldn't get to Anchorage till that night, so that wouldn't work with our dinner plans. So takeoff from Homer was kind of a surprise. It's an incline east along Kachemak Bay, and the skies look clear that way. And the kind of astounding thing to me was at the very end of Kachemak Bay, it was like we're flying over the southwest. There's red cliffs, and they stand wide and tall at the far edge of Kachemak. And I just would not have believed that that's how Kachemak Bay ended. It looked in, like an entirely different uh, region than Alaska. But anyway, we lift up and fly over virgin land, ice fields, and we circle back over to the left to the port side. And uh, he kind of corrects our flight pattern. And he says, look ahead. He says, there's Lake Tatsumina way up there. It just came into view. As we were flying up there, the fog moves in against our port side, against the side Frank saw to my left. It's funny how that fog just blocking out the sunlight and slapping against the plane just kind of panicked me. The first thing that ever happens when I'm like that it was first a claustrophobic seat and uh, I needed to get my toes out of my shoes and thank god I had on loafers. I, I just kind of reached down with the tips of my fingers as much uh, movement I could manage and, and uh, was able to get my shoes off. I looked over at Frank, and he was kind of leaning back at an angle in the corner position, and he's really quiet, and uh, his eyeballs were moving, and he had his glasses on with those see-all detective glasses, he called them, and he just kind of looked at everything just kind of rolling around in his eye sockets. Suddenly, the southwestern shore of Lake Tustamina was below us, and we began crossing, and he said it was about a nine mile crossing across. In moments, the fog just swamped us. The interior just went pitch black. We couldn't see out. Abe turned around, the pilot uh, said that 
we're losing our land visuals. And he says, we could get off course. And, and he says, uh, I'll check the radio for bearings. And he started working on the radio and the radio cuts out. And he tried over and over again and frantically, uh, Abe turns and says, nothing, we've lost radio communication. And he was almost in a sweat and Abe turns talking loud, he says, I need all your consent. What I believe must be done is to spiral up like in a helix above this layer of fog and get land bearings. And of course, none of us were objected to that. We gave our consent right away and Abe starts this circling and circling. It was unending. I went round and around. Of course, you don't know you're going around. You just know you're in the dark somewhere. <laughs> And, and we just get seemed to be getting higher and higher. The only way I could tell we were, my ears started hurting. Stabbing pain was going through them, which, of course, it's unpressurized. And, and changes in elevation like that affect my ears. I had bad ears as a kid. We just kept going higher and higher, it seemed. And suddenly there was diffuse light into the cab, and everything seemed to brighten up a little. And you could detect motion. Uh, you could kind of see things that that would be reference points to uh, movement. And the fog weakened, and the fog made a quick fade, and all of a sudden we were above it all for strong, strong sun. It just seemed like it was so nice to get above that dismal clutch. I, I felt relieved. And all around us were distant mountaintops. Uh, it kept puncturing the fog, but they all looked alike. These pointy peaks uh, above uh, the fog, I wasn't sure how useful all that would be to us. And Abe calls us to all of us, guys, this is how high we are. And all of a sudden, the engine started sputtering and stopped him. And the engine stops, and there was this horrific silence. It, it was amazing to be in this thing. And Abe, he was frantic. We just kept trying to restart, restart the grinding, grinding, grinding the button up and there was nothing. Just quiet again and again. And finally he screamed, the engine won't budge. Can't believe this. We're in a booby trap. And panic grips all of us. And Dan says in his slow, methodical sound, why a booby trap, Abe? He says, it acts like we've got no gas. Uh, he says, look. It says, look at the wet fuel gauges up there, right up there. Wing, wing, both tanks, wing tanks are full, both of them. Then suddenly uh, our quiet arc up in the sunlight straightens and we sink and we started sinking softly back and dim and we grabbed and were grabbed into this darkness again and we were going down and... Abe looked back and he says, look, guys, what I can do here is slow us, keep us from windmilling. He says, keep calm. What you do is tighten seat belts tight as you can and be ready for bending forward. Put heads in your faces down and your arms around them. No matter, hold and protect. When we hit, stiffen bodies and brace. Don't flop. No matter what we end on, he says, it'll be violent, a jolt like we've never experienced ever. I'm sorry, you guys. And we were all just sitting like statues in there in this dark. You couldn't tell. He says, fear just plugged up my throat. I couldn't even talk. And silence takes charge. There weren't any shrieks or screams or swearing or blame. Or you didn't see visions of passing life. 
as you've heard the fable parades in your last minutes of life that were all belted in still as statues someplace. There was one replay that came to my mind that last glimpse straight below before fog was Lake Tutstamena and Abe's words about surviving those cold waters first thought were as good as dead. Smooth engulfs and cushions are the plane toward some unknown and dart just concealed everything inside and out no motion you you just felt like you were just hanging there somewhere in the dark going someplace and nobody knew where and frank and i were scunched as close as we could side by side gosh and our shoulders were overlapping and by this time our heads were very very close and I could feel his head turn and his mouth was against my ear and he said really soft, he says, if I tell you there's six gallons of gas in my back pocket, will you become a Catholic? He always thought I was a heathen and my throat just was stopped. I couldn't even answer. Arms and legs stuck. My eyes were open to dark. I can't see anything, can't tell if we're level, if we're vertical or upside down. We're just hanging, waiting and await for something for what? And where were we going and when? Thoughts can't quit, can't answer back. Then quick drop below fog. All of a sudden, our inertia just turns to speed and it was fast and Abe yelling, not water, greeny stuff and soft, greenish, so close, so close, rushing up fastest. And it was coming, this, this vision of this land coming at us and Abe shouts, we're, we're right side up, landing gear don't retract, it'll sink in, speed will flip us. Ball bodies now, hold them tight, not flop. Heads, faces, and arms, guys, can't survive this. Here tis, guys. Crazy, I'm crazy for feeling. So lonely I'm crazy Crazy for feeling So blue I knew You'd love me As long as you wanted about his 30 years designing in Alaska. For more about Ralph and his work, see his website, artechdivisions.com. My website is frame-ak.com. This has been Alley Audio Vision, episode 8, recorded at June 15, 2020. So long, dear friends. <laughs>